The Secret Library Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you via the Secret Library Podcast Patreon. You can check it out and join to be part of the writing club where you get bonus audio solo episodes with me, audio Q&As, and more at patreon.com slash secret library. This is episode 142 of the Secret Library Podcast. My guest this week is Kara Robertson, who is a lawyer whose writing has appeared in the Boston Globe, the Raleigh News and Observer, and the Yale Journal of Law and Humanities. She was educated at Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford Law School. A former Supreme Court law clerk, she served as a legal advisor to the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia at The Hague and as a visiting scholar at Stanford Law School. Her scholarship has been supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Humanities Center, of which she's a trustee. Her first, uh, she first began researching the Lizzie Borden story as a senior at Harvard, and she published her first paper on the trial in the Yale Journal of Law and the Humanities in 1997. The Trial of Lizzie Borden is her first book. It was a real treat having Cara Robertson on to hear about her own trial of creating the book about the Lizzie Borden trial. It was a process that began in the 1990s, culminating this year with the publication of the book, in which she came up with her idea, researched it copiously, got completely seduced by the research, even had to table the project and resell the proposal in a second uh, a second go-round with publication, and now has a wonderful book to thank for it. So we discuss all manner of research, creating a character, remaining unbiased when writing about a public trial, and all manner of delights in terms of researching the unsolved mystery of the Lizzie Borden case. So I know you'll enjoy listening to Cara Robertson. Hi, Cara. Thank you so much for coming on. Hello. It's my pleasure to be here. So I don't know if we have, I'm, I'm sure that stories fascinate people for years, but it, with the trial of Lizzie Borden coming out, you have been fascinated by the topic of this trial since, was it 1990? Like it's been, mm -hmm. it's been in there for quite some time. So I'm wondering if you can share what initially struck you about the trial and also what kept you engaged with it through undergrad, through law school, through being exposed to many, many, many cases, I'm sure, throughout your career? What was it about this one that struck you and kept you entranced? Well, I have to admit, I was first drawn to the mystery. You know, I knew it was, uh, although most people know the rhyme. Uh, so uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, you know, there is a popular sense that Lizzie Borden was guilty, but, uh, you know, I knew that it was technically an unsolved case. And so I like the idea of the whodunit. And I also like the idea of a why done it. You know, even if you imagine that, you know, the identity of the killer, the motivation uh, seems hard to fathom. Uh, and then I was also quite specifically, I mean, just for the purposes of being a student who needed to write a senior honors thesis, uh, that I like the idea of using a great public trial as a lens onto a particular period in American history. And I was drawn to the what we call the Gilded Age, particularly the late 19th century, very early part of the 20th century, uh, as a way that as a as a time that was particularly rich and resonant in terms of what uh, we understand women might be capable of. Right. Yes. 
it is, this is one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book was this sort of period detail and the details from the setting. And I wondered how you were able to get all of these details. I mean, obviously there's probably records about the weather, but there's so much mention about how hot it is and how miserable everybody is. And then there's a cow (laughs) outside making a bunch of noise and all of these things happening. And then people just kind of bum rushing to get in there, even though it's so hot and miserable in there. They're all just dying to be in this courtroom and watch the proceedings. So I'm wondering what it was like to find that detail and to really paint a picture of the experience of being in this trial, which is so vivid in the book. Well, thank you. For for me, the, those are the details that make the story come alive. Uh, I was, you know, I'm a trained lawyer, so reading trial transcripts um, were pretty interesting to me. But in terms of uh, having a sense of what, you know, how immersive the experience was, uh, how closely people were following the trial, uh, and as you say, how desperate uh, a large number of people were to get into the courtroom to witness it personally, or at least to witness Lizzie Borden to the courthouse, uh, is what made it really come alive for me. Uh, and so in terms of where I actually found those details, mostly from the reporting, mm. uh, there were many, many more newspapers than we would, we would, have, we would think today, based on today, uh, covering the trial. And, uh, a number of them sent what we might think of as columnists to go um, to report. And uh, they tended to provide this kind of detail. Uh, And it was also possible to check them against each other because they also were known to embroider a little bit. That's amazing. Yeah, because there was detail about they had to keep building more seats for all of these papers. And then different cities were angry because they weren't like New York didn't get enough seating. And so they had to build. I mean, they built more seating with such an amazing detail. (laughs) Yeah, I like the idea that they, you know, that they needed to put a floor down in the shed outside. And uh, the Boston Globe actually had its own telegraph shed. uh, And that one, uh, one. A uh, local said that said that you could hang all the washing in the county on the telegraph lines that ran to and from the courthouse. Wow. So, uh, and then the courthouse itself is pretty small, so that so that there's a large demand for tickets every day, and that becomes something that the police uh, have to enforce. You know, particularly when you consider that a, a large part of the audience was women. Right. Yeah. And they're just watching the whole thing. It just, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if anyone has brought this up, but I couldn't help but think of the OJ Simpson trial while I was reading this as sort of the comparable experience in the modern sort of the more recent era that it's just like the way that everybody shut their lives down and was watching the whole thing and following the whole thing and wondering what was happening. Um, It just felt like it was more than a trial for this one woman. It was, as you say, really indicative of the time period. It, everybody was involved. Everybody wanted to hear about it. Did it feel like it was such a turning point in society there from your point of view? Uh, yeah, I do think that the uh, O.J. Simpson's the best the best parallel. I mean, I was definitely struck by that, having, um, s- you know, s- s- remembered or seen at the time Camp O.J., you know, which was the, which were, and, and that the trial itself probably 
the OJ trial itself, you know, made possible all these cable channels as well. Uh, and so I think it, it, it did have that, it did have that centrality. In other words, that, that people were reading about it every day and, and arguing about it. Uh, and that what seemed at stake was more than the guilt or innocence of a particular person, you know, that it, that there was something larger going on at the trial. And so that, uh, you know, that that was part of what captured so much interest. Yes, a lot of it was about, I was really struck by the <clears throat> the testimony about like whether or not it was her time of the month and what that might mean in terms of her ability to kill somebody or not based on that. It's just amazing the, the arguments because there is so much in there. The arguments that are included in terms of what people think is possible and what women are or aren't capable of. It, it felt so indicative of the time period. Right. I think that that's, uh, you know, there is a sense in which I suppose you could say that any trial requires a jury to assess whether or not they think the defendant could do such a thing, you know, is capable of it. But I don't think we ever, you know, have seen it quite so baldly that this was a, this was a, this was a, um, a study, not so much of whether Lizzie Borden did something or didn't do something, but whether someone like her could possibly do the sorts of things that were alleged, you know, so that it's the, it's the violence of the crime. It's the fact that one of the victims is her father, uh, you know, and here is someone in court who seems to tick all the boxes for how, at least on paper, you know, for how unmarried uh, ladies of a certain type are supposed to behave. She's active in good works. Uh, she's a Sunday school teacher. She's just an otherwise, before this story, an otherwise unremarkable person. Uh, and then she's thrust into public consciousness as this potential hatchet-wielding parasite. And it just seems impossible. You know, what does it, what could it possibly mean if someone like that, who for the first, as the prosecutor says, you know, for 32 years was perfectly normal, does something like this, you know, how do we make sense of that? Right. It's a, it's a fascinating question. And I'm, I'm wondering at what point that you were, so you wrote a thesis about the trial and then you went on, but when did it become uh, when did it become a book and how did you start to work on it as a book? I first had the idea that this really should be a book, you know, as I had picked it up, um, I thought I left it after I finished the senior thesis. And then I picked it up again in law school and wrote an article uh, based on some legal points in the case. And again, I thought I was done with it. And then uh, I just thought, oh, this, this really should be a book with the trial at the center, you know, not a solution book not a study of the aftermath, although I was really interested in that too, but just something that follows the case from the beginning to the, to the you know, bizarre cultural afterlife, uh, but with the trial as the central focus. And um, so I thought, oh, well, what I, what I need to do is just make sure that somebody wants this. <laughs> and so I wrote a proposal and uh, uh, it was uh, bought by my current editor, who was then at Random House, uh, and 
then I just didn't do it. I mean, it just took, it just, I don't know. I, I, I'm sure this is something that people say all the time, but it, and so it, it may seem a little trite, but in retrospect, having figured out how to write it finally, the structure and um, seeing it all come to place, it's hard to understand why it took so long. But uh, I think that I found, I found myself um, following a lot of uh, research digressions, mm. which I don't regret, but uh, it's the temptations of the archives for those of us who are historically inclined. You know, it's just very satisfying to root around. Um, and obviously it's much harder to write. <laughs> or maybe I shouldn't say obviously, it is for me. I don't uh, think you're and, alone at all. <laughs> and I also, I, as a lawyer, you know, first as a student for a long time and then as a lawyer, I was used to, you know, I would write on demand, you know, as required, but things I was interested in. And then I wrote, I wrote for other people. So to find my own voice and to write, you know, with the first audience really being me, uh, as opposed to someone else, uh, that took a long, that took a long time. I had to decide it was the thing that was most important to me. Mm. And uh, that's harder than it sounds. <laughs> I think it is. I think that, I mean, it's in many cases I've discussed with people, but it is kind of an insane thing to undertake writing a book. If you look at it objectively, like I'm going to take all of my time and my energy and spend time away from other things, which may pay more immediately or have more immediate results and just really dive into this and just be in it for years potentially, and then, and not know what's going to come out of it in the end. I mean, having sold a proposal is a great start, but there's still a mystery as to, okay, well, how is this all going to come together? And I can see why other things came forward. I probably just in the interest of full disclosure. So I, I had to, um, it was clear I was going to meet my deadline. So I had to buy back the book and then for several years, I just worked on it by myself. And then, uh, as it, as luck would have it, you know, I still had the same agent and uh, Tina Bennett, who's fantastic. Uh, and uh, my editor, my former editor had moved to Simon and Schuster. Uh, and so um, he bought it when I reconceived it. So it has the, it, it feels like it was one continuous project, but it was a little less smooth than uh, it might have seemed. That's amazing. I mean, I think it's wonderful to hear, you know, that you can have a project. I mean, people have talked also about writing book proposals, selling the book, and then writing a book that was at least 50% different than the book they planned to write. <laughs> but I think yeah. it's important for people to hear that this, all of these things happen. I think it's very easy when you're in the early stages with your own book to think, well, other people just plan this and they write it and it's all perfect and it comes out and it's so easy. Um, and it's not, especially when it's a topic as complicated as this with as many facts in it. Um, to play with. Right. The second time around was a lot more smooth. You know, I sold, I sold the proposal in 2000 at the at Labor Day or sometime around then in 2016. And then, you know, I delivered it at the end of March of 2018. And so that's, I think that's what I expected to happen the first time around that I would, uh, I would be able to do that because, you know, after all, I'd spent, spent this time as a lawyer producing things on deadline. Uh, and so it, it didn't occur to me that I would not be able to do that. So it came as quite a shock when I found uh, that when I was working for myself, I um, 
I had trouble, you know, producing what I wanted to do or seeing, seeing the way I wanted it to, to be shaped uh, without the structure being imposed from the outside. Uh, one, one happy circumstance of taking so long to write the book is that, is that as I proceeded and as I lost myself in various, you know, research digressions, uh, that more and more primary sources became available. So there's no question in my mind that it's a richer book for, for having taken so long. Uh, and I have no regrets about that. I've heard that many times as well, that like, there's always a benefit, even though it's painful, it can be really painful for something to take a long time. And I don't think anybody has ever said, I really hope the next one takes longer when I write another book. <laughs> I've never heard anyone say that. But at the same time, I do think that there's always a benefit. There's always some ancillary gain from something taking as long as it ends up taking. Yeah, and I think I, I think it probably helped to age into the material too. I mean, both both in the sense of deep familiarity with the uh, with that period in history, and in particular what life was like in the town of Fall River. Uh, you know, this this allowed me to have many, many trips to Fall River, you know, a, a regular a regular journey. So I could I, I just had a sense of the geography, the t topography in a way that I think I, I didn't at first. I saw it as more of an intellectual exercise you know, based on trial transcripts uh, and also just in, a, in in trying to figure out the characters you know, I think it, I think it probably helps to have things not go totally smoothly, um, to have a better sense of what the lives of people are like, you know, in terms of the live reality, uh, particularly if you're thinking about women in that era. Yeah. Which could not be more different than it is now. Right. It's a very, it's a very slow way of life. Um, and it's, it's one that, was extremely constrained, uh, and so I think it's. I think it, you know, I think it helps in terms of just uh, you get a little bit of an inside view. I think by making the process more leisurely. Now, of course, you know, my parents and my agent didn't agree with this. <laughs> <laughs> they were all very supportive. <laughs> let me just let me just state for the record, but but uh, uh, I think that. Well, it's their definite benefits. Um, their definite benefits to the to dragging out the process, or to a maybe I shouldn't put it that way to elongating the process and luxuriating in the process. There, there may be some dissenters. Let's just say. <laughs> Got it. Well, we'll we'll let them speak privately about that. <laughs> but I'm interested because you mentioned the the process of creating the characters, and this was a, a concept that I thought was really of interest to me and I think would be interest to those uh, listening, which is basically you're very, um, speaking of constraints, constrained by the fact that you're working from transcripts, you're working from um, court records, you're working from newspapers, you're working from all of those details. And yet there is something that you have to fill in as the writer to bring those people to life. And I'm wondering how you held that tension as a writer in trying to bring us a Lizzie that we can see, but not 
kind of push us in either direction as to who Lizzie was or wasn't, um, as well as all the others, the lawyers, the, I mean, the names, can I just say the, the carpenter, <laughs> the carpenter whose last name was shirts, uh, short sleeves. I, I was uh-huh. so thrilled. I'm like, I've never heard that name before or since. Amazing. <laughs> so you must've been delighted with that discovery, but I'm just wondering about the drawing, the character detail from historical record when you're trying to really as honestly as possible portray a uh, a trial yeah i think as you as you point out that's probably the the biggest tension because i I was committed to it this being truthful you know i didn't want to embroider i didn't want to make up uh anything about people's you know psychological states I thought, well, where where will I find something that will flesh them out? And in some cases, uh, there are the journalists, for example, were were prominent enough to to write memoirs, mm. uh, and sometimes um, other pieces. You know, they were they were well enough known, so it's possible to get a sense of their uh, their voice in general. Um, and and some of their writing was more personal, uh, as you can tell from even the book. You know, that they themselves are in the story in a way that that we might find surprising. Uh, and then, um, and in some cases, they're even more personal and published things uh, that, you know, it's possible to find some diaries and letters, very, very limited, very limited in, in uh, number, unfortunately, but, but that was possible as well. And then, you know, having a sense, I think that the, the historical grounding gives you a sense, uh, not just what a typical person might have been like or expected or what their the course of their life might be like, but the the ways in which the particular people in the trial diverge from that. So, you know, some of what's interesting about Lizzie Borden is her typicality, you know, the way in which she embodies many of the qualities that women are expected to have in that time period. But of course, there are ways in which she diverges rather significantly. And so I think that, you know, that is something that's worth emphasizing. And it's also fair, you know, fair minded so that so that while I I, I can't claim that I really penetrated the cipher, you know, the enigma, or she was called the human sphinx, that is Lizzie Borden. I think I can give the reader I thought, oh, I can give the reader a sense of of this self-possession that she had in the during the trial that people found so remarkable and on some level unladylike. Yeah, it was fascinating to me the tension of that because she's dignified in the courtroom, she's composed, um, she does cry several times, obviously, when the verdict comes through, but uh-huh. in, at other points as well, when there's mention of her father and other moments, but it, there's a lot of sort of hubbub, I don't know how else to describe it, from people having opinions about how she should or should not react to things or how she should or should not have reacted upon finding her stepmother, finding her father, other such things that happened, that's a real lens on the time period, which I thought was really noteworthy. Yeah. And, and uh, there is a way in which the trial becomes these stories about Lizzie Borden, competing versions of Lizzie Borden on the, by the prosecution and the defense as much as it does about the evidence. And you can also see the audience um, both specifically the people 
you know, kind of gossiping in the courthouse, but also the wider audience of uh, journalists writing for newspapers across the country weighing in on this question as well. Uh, and that that gives you, I mean, it is the advantage of working on uh, a trial because it does give you the sense that, um, you know, of what, of what behavior is expected. Because if you deviate from that ex- that behavior or that display, the particular kinds of display, then you're more or less suspicious, um, if that's not too rambling. No, no, that makes sense. I think the other, the other question I had was, how did your relationship to Lizzie Borden and your feelings about her change through the process of writing a book? Because obviously, there's a nursery school rhyme about her (laughs) being guilty. But I wonder how it feels um, to read it both as someone researching the book, but also as a lawyer reading arguments that other lawyers made in a very different time period about reasons why she might be guilty and reasons why she might not. And I wondered how that felt for you reading it and, and putting those arguments into the book. Well, when I started working on the book, I I actually didn't find Lizzie Borden very interesting at all. Interesting. Uh, I, uh, yeah, uh, I, I thought she was probably the least interesting person in the story um, because either, uh, you know, she did it, in which case, uh, I mean, what 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 can you say about someone like that? Um, that it might be, it's just hard to, it's hard to fathom. And then, or she's, she's someone who is really just in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, that's essentially the defense argument. In which case, she really is totally unremarkable. You know that there's not much to say. Um, but that was that, that was before um, I got into the case as a whole. I, I became struck by the way that you know the way in which she became this still center, as you say, in the midst of the hubbub around her, um, and that she was able to um, remain so controlled. I, I mean that itself is kind of odd. Not that, not so much that we think that, you know, not, not so much in the, in the sense of her contemporaries that, you know, women are supposed to behave in certain ways. So why didn't she have the reaction she's supposed to have? What's wrong with her? Or no, really, we can see this is, this is how a lady would behave in these circumstances. So actually her reaction is not so strange. And that the production of the skulls, for example, was just too much. And so she broke down then. I, I um, found that really shocking. I mean, is that something that would happen nowadays? I can't imagine those particular artifacts being brought into a, a courtroom. I thought this was noteworthy actually on a number of fronts. That <laughs> and and then also the bloody sofa outside the courtroom that people were walking by and like peeking underneath to see as just casual, you know, attendees of the courtroom. Is that, I mean, obviously that doesn't really happen in the same way anymore, but I wondered if that struck you, the the treatment of the evidence. Yeah, I was, I was quite, I was quite uh, shocked by that as well. Um, I, you know, I knew about the skulls from a fairly early time. So although that seemed uh, <laughs> surprising and a sort of a moment of theater, you know, that, the that they'd, you know, it's, it's sort of a, a literal production of the, of the, uh, accusing skulls. 
And what what was the amount? I mean, I'm sorry to get really nerdy about this, but for those oh, for I, those listening, sure. the the skulls of both Lizzie Borden's father and stepmother who were murdered were produced in the courtroom to show kind of the impact of the axe or which they determined was the murder weapon. But I'm like, how are they skulls already? How have they treated them <laughs> such that you're looking at a skeleton and not like a decapitated head? I mean, has it been a year at this point like how long has this gone on i i just didn't right. understand well, were, how this was possible basically well the flesh was rendered off of them so uh they were you know they were treated to okay. make them skeletons you know much as much as a, if it were an anatomy display okay. and the rumor uh based on based on something that the um coroner's son had said uh was that was that he'd taken them home uh, and uh, done the rendering off of the flesh in a, in lobster pots at his house. Oh my God! Um, but the I know it's uh, the sofa. The sofa outside too was pretty shocking, uh, and that seemed consistent with with the sort of um, I think we'd almost call a cavalier treatment of the evidence based on what we would expect now with everything properly labeled and handled in the chain of custody. Uh, and even at the time of the murders, I mean, one of the things that sort of wish I'd had more time to explore, um, but I didn't want to get too stalled, is that is that there are just dozens of people who are walking through the house, you know, long before the crime scene is fully processed as we, so that's the technical term that of course we would use today, but, you know, there was nothing like the, um, the rigor you'd see in a modern crime scene. I, I was struck by the wondering about technology and how much that would have changed this case at the time in that um, if there were just photographs of the scene soon after mm -hmm. everything happened, if they had gotten a photograph of this infamous dress, if they had gotten photographs of the rooms, like just cameras would have made a huge difference yeah. to this case. Well, there are, there, there are photographs of, of what we think of as the crime scene. So that, and they're in the book, uh, pictures of the, you know, the bodies, um, one on the floor upstairs in the guest room and one on the sofa downstairs. Uh, and some pictures of the scene, and there are even pictures of of um, it wasn't the the proper eye autopsy was done later, but there were there was a um, a board an undertaker's board basically brought in to have a kind of preliminary examination of the bodies, and those pictures were taken. But you know we do it is true we don't have pictures, for example, of the dress, so that the you know, neither the dress she was wearing at the time nor the dress that um, was given uh, to the prosecutors and the police as the dress she supposedly wore, wore on the morning of the murders. Right. And I'm sure there are many people who think that, you know, had there just been the kind of uh, blood analysis that we have now, that Lizzie Borden could have been ruled in or ruled out pretty quickly. Exactly. Yeah, I thought that made it fascinating. Just just noting like, okay, if we had fingerprints, you know, if we had some basic technology that we have now, um, or, you know, the kinds of UV lighting or other such things to see if there was evidence of anything on a dress later. All of this is just fascinating in terms of what you can and can't do and what they did the best with at the time. And it 
I think it made it noteworthy in terms of as a reader. And I'm just fascinated by all of the detail you were able to get. I'm wondering how you cataloged all of this detail and all of this research in terms of your method. Like, how are you keeping track of all of these details? And how are you writing all of it, you know, from copious notes, I'm sure? <laughs> yes. And I started out with index cards. Oh, amazing. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm sure that, uh, there are many people listening who have never even seen them. Oh, I still use <laughs> them. I still use them. I, I like them too. I think it's, I think they're very helpful. Uh, and so, uh, that, and I used, um, graph paper, you know, the, the, you can roll out. Oh, wow. Uh, to keep track of what was going on at different days or different times. Oh, how did you do that? You had like a whole timetable out on a giant sheet of graph paper. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Uh, and then also for the, for what happened in, at the trial. Oh, right. You know, so that I could, so I could keep track of, of, um, what was happening day by day. I mean, obviously one has the transcript to fall back on, but it was, was helpful to see it. It was an easier way to see it as a whole as to, as to what was the strategy, you know, what did the prosecution try to do first, second, third, um, what about the defense? Did it seem like there was a structure to it? Uh, and I think that some of that just helped visually. I also liked, uh, uh, I had much like the people at the time, you know, a map of the neighborhood mm. <laughs> so that I could be reminded of whose house was where probably worth remembering though, though, having been to fall river so many times, I, I, uh, I, I didn't really need this, but just a reminder of how close the houses were. So that, you know, insofar as the argument is that uh, by the defense is that, you know, just somebody could have come in from the outside, uh, how unlikely that seems, which is not to say it didn't happen. It just, it's just quite unlikely. Right. So if I'm allowed to ask this question, I was, I wondered, did you feel that she had done it by the end of the process? Is this something you're discussing openly? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I had a, I had a long discussion with my editor about this. Uh, I found that to, to write it fairly, I, I really had to keep the question open, uh, that, that most of the books that had been written before, and, and these are, you know, many books that I like a lot, uh, you know, they tend to want to solve the case. Right. You know, they're not really about the trial, but they're they're about solving this case and the trial features or doesn't feature, depending upon how they've decided to structure the book. You know, and inevitably, um, in structuring something that's a narrative, there are things that you have to emphasize and there are things that maybe you're left out or revealed later. I think it, uh, my experience of reading those solution books is that it, it always seemed a little bit of a cheat, right. you know, that it seemed unfair, that the, the decks had been stacked that this was not a, you know, fair play mystery novel or a fair play mystery, uh, obviously not a novel, but I mean, a mystery um, where really, if you have all the evidence the author has that you two can reach the, reach the conclusion. So uh, I was very clear on that from the outset, that that's what I wanted. Um, and I found that by writing it that way, it made the story more open to me too. You know, I'm again, I'm used to being a lawyer where you make an argument, you know, and you believe your case because otherwise you can't 
write it. You know, I mean, you you may recognize what the what the uh, weak points are um, and try to minimize those um, or acknowledge them if you're being, you know, to, to, because that's that's probably best rhetorically. But you have a position. I think the I think you know ultimately I would come down on the side of saying, well, it's really hard to see how anyone else could have done it. Right. But it's also hard to see how someone could have done it. I mean, Lizzie Borden uh, removed all the traces of blood uh, and, you know, and and managed to seem um, normal enough in between to to not alert her. It's it's relevant to the to both the unlikeliness of the outside assailant and also the point I'm trying to make of of her apparent normality between the crimes that the murders are about an hour and a half apart. It's hard to see if someone else could have gotten in from the outside to do it in, uh, under those circumstances. Right. But it's also hard to imagine just logistically how she could have done it. Um, and so, you know, I think we'll just never know. And I'm uh, on some level, that's not the most important part of the story to me. Right. Um, as you know, as upsetting as it is, if it turns out to be that you know she in fact is the killer, I mean that's much more upsetting than than the outside of some motiveless outside maniac coming in. Um, but what what holds the fascination uh, is not the simple guilt did she or didn't she. Um, it's all the questions it raises about um, what we think what we think people are capable of. Um, and particularly, what do we think women are capable of? Exactly. So I guess I guess she'll just have to stay a mystery. Especially, I mean, it's it's lovely to think that there is a file out there with more information that that no one is allowed <laughs> to see. That that's part of it. And I'm sure everyone who reads the book will be left puzzling as I am about well, what might that file contain? Right. Uh, it's yeah, it is a frustrating. That I mean, must is, be maddening a... to not be able to see it. You must have been just beside yourself to know that it right. was there and not get to see it. Right. Well, I, you know, I, I, I tried. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> As you can imagine, I, I, I find it, you know, incomprehensible that, that, uh, that there's the, that happenstance of the way that the, uh, that it's pre- preservation, um, has unfolded means that, you know, it's not accessible given that, given that we, um, we have the, we have the probably equivalent, but we have the trial diaries and journals of, uh, the local lawyer, Andrew Jennings, that were kept in a hip bath, uh, and then ultimately donated to the historical society. Uh, and we have the papers, uh, and a lot of other, background information from the prosecution and the files of the chief of police, you know, which include some correspondence about the case, but also all of these crank communications that they receive from well-meaning members of the public or not so well-meaning members of the public with, with ideas. So uh, it does seem strange to me, even as a lawyer, that there is this file that, that um, uh, the firm has taken this position on. Well, they let us never say that attorney-client privilege is not strong, I suppose. <laughs> yes, yes. It survives death. Yeah, even beyond death uh, of both people involved. 
Right. On some level, I suppose I, I like the idea that it, you know, there's still yet another mystery. Yes. Um, that, you know, I hope this is an authoritative account, but, but I expect there, the debate to continue. I expect it will. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about the book, the process of writing the book, and all of the challenges of, of writing about such a complex trial, which still raises pertinent thoughts and avenues of discussion even now. So thank you so much, Kara, for being on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.